This episode of Annotated is sponsored by The Lost City of the Monkey God by Doug Preston. Since the days of Conquistador Hernán Cortés, rumors have circulated about a lost city of immense wealth hidden somewhere in the Honduran interior. It was called the White City, or the Lost City of the Monkey God. In 1940, swashbuckling journalist Theodore Mord returned from the rainforest with hundreds of artifacts and an electrifying story of having found the Lost City of the Monkey God. But then, he committed suicide without revealing its location. Three quarters of a century later, best-selling author Doug Preston joined a team of scientists on a groundbreaking new quest. Venturing into this raw, treacherous, but breathtakingly beautiful wilderness, Preston and the team battled torrential rains, quick mud, disease-carrying insects, jaguars, and deadly snakes. Suspenseful and shocking, filled with fascinating history, hair-raising adventure, and dramatic twists of fortune, The Lost City of the Monkey God is the absolutely true eyewitness account of one of the great discoveries of the 21st century. The Lost City of the Monkey God is now available in paperback. So here I was pitching this episode about Oxford commas to my friend Jeremy. He's been helping me write and produce this season of Annotated. And so he tells me that if it weren't for the Oxford comma, he might not have met his wife. Right. So I'm back on the dating market. Uh, It's the first time I've ever used online dating apps. And there's an about me section. And so I wrote a whole bunch of nerdy things about myself. And I ended the section with the phrase dislikes broccoli, Rob, Donald Trump and the Oxford comma. And a beautiful woman writes me back and she says, just what is an Oxford comma and what do you have against it? And that was the first thing that my now wife wrote to me. And you've been married how long now? Um, Officially one week today. (laughs) (laughs) Was her response good? Well, here's the thing. She's totally wrong because she likes the Oxford comma. Well, I mean, yes, absolutely, 100%, because without it, it sentences become muddied and confusing. This is Blair, Jeremy's now wife, with her side of the story. I mean, I always, always go back to, I I call it the quote-unquote breakfast special argument. So, for example, you're ordering a breakfast special, and it comes with eggs, bacon, etc., but then you also have your choice of juice, coffee, or tea. And so without that last comma, are you getting juice or coffee or tea? Or are you getting juice, comma, coffee or tea? I think it's very confusing without that last one. You've got to have it. Okay, so let's back up a second. So why put the Oxford comma in there? Like, what were you hoping to communicate to someone about that? You know, a potential life mate. Well... I feel like the entire online dating process is sort of whittling down the world into people you want to be in a room with. And I felt like this would sort of help me hone in on someone who cared about something as silly as the Oxford comma. And it's like a signifier. It's the kind of thing where if someone cares about the Oxford comma, they're probably going to like the same kinds of things that I do. So I I saw it and I thought, Oh, that's kind of fun. And, He's clearly charming and smart, and how can I be equally charming and smart back at him to get his attention? I've always really been attracted to a smarty pants, 
And here's this guy who is unequivocally articulate and um, charming and nerdy, and it's right there in one sentence. Um, And so I just felt like I had to reach out to this guy, this total geek. So then what ensued, I understand, and I don't know if this happened over message or in person conversations later, is you, you disagreed about the use of this this particular comma. Is that right? It, it is. It became a heated debate, and it continues to be in our relationship, yes. You told me that you actually had an occasion in the run-up to your wedding to actually, you know, make a real decision about an Oxford comma or, or not. Well, so I don't know if you're familiar with the ketubah, which is a traditional Jewish marriage contract. So Blair and I were putting this together, and you get to choose from a whole bunch of translations, and one was chosen for us, and she asked me to proofread it. And all I'm going to say is I clearly love my new wife because I left in all the Oxford commas for her. I will have to look at them for eternity framed on my wall. (laughs) It is a testament to my love for her. (laughs) Now, he also wants credit. Um, and I don't know if you, you can give it to him here if not, for allowing an Oxford comma into your ketubah. <laughs> it's true. It did not become a debate. He very kindly acknowledged it and did not fight me on it. So it was a genuine act of love, I would say. He said, and tell me if this is true, that because... You know, I asked him, like, was it a turn off when he found out you were pro Oxford comma? He said, no. What he liked is that you cared. <laughs> oh, that I love that. I, I'm glad that it wasn't a deal breaker. It's a cute story, but also kind of strange, right? There is something about the Oxford comma, whether you are for it or against it, whether you care that for some reason matters. How exactly did we get here? And should we, or should we not, as the song says, give a f*** about an Oxford comma? Hello and welcome to Annotated. I'm Jeff O'Neill. In this episode, we consider the strange case of the Oxford comma, what it is, where it came from, why we care about it, and what it tells us about language, punctuation, and how we think about ourselves. I can't promise you a marriage proposal, but along the way, we will puzzle over Dickens, discover warring schools of punctuation, and make a quick stop at the Library of Alexandria. This episode and the following message are brought to you by Devastation Road by Jason Hewitt. In the last months of World War II, a man wakes in a field in a country he does not know. Injured and with only flashes of memory coming back to him, he pulls himself to his feet and starts to walk, setting out on an extraordinary journey in search of his home, his past, and himself. His name is Owen. A war he has only a vague recollection of joining is in its dying days. And as he tries to get back to England, he becomes caught up in the flood of rootless people pouring through Europe. Among them is a teenage boy, and together they form an unlikely alliance as they cross battle-worn Germany. When they meet a troubled young woman, tempers flare and scars are revealed as Owen gathers up the shattered pieces of his life. No one is as he remembers, not even himself. How can he truly return home when he hardly recalls what home is? Our thanks to Devastation Road by Jason Hewitt for making Annotated possible. Can you hear me okay? Yes, um, I can hear you fine. Uh, Am I coming through loud and clear? You sound great. 
to help me sort out this Oxford comma business, I've brought in a ringer, Mary Norris, who worked from 1978 to 2016 at the New Yorker magazine. She has argued about commas with some of the great writers of the 20th century, and I would wager she has thought about commas more than anyone alive. It occurred to me, I can't think of another battleground in the, the, in the realm of punctuation that elicits such vehemence and passion. Is there one that I'm missing? Is there anything even close to this? I don't think so. Let's see. This is the one that it is like a standard bearer, isn't it? You know, there are, of course, arguments about that and which, and I wish I hadn't even mentioned that and which, because so there are people who come down hard on, on that argument, but there's really nothing. People don't feel that the serial comma is a subjective decision and is part of why they're passionate about it because it seems so obvious that it's an objective choice. <laughs> right. It's a binary decision too. You either put a comma right before that last, that and, or you don't. That's right. Mm-hmm. It is kind of part of the identity and that <laughs> it is one of those criteria that will give you a pretty good idea of a person actually, I suppose. First of all, when you realize that the person is really serious about his stand on the serial comma, and then when you find out whether it's for or against, yeah, it, it kinda, it's kind of a characteristic of a person, yes. Even for someone who has been thinking about punctuation for decades like Mary, the passion around the Oxford comma, also known as the serial comma, still comes as a surprise. Well, I'm always surprised at how passionate people are about it. And I've just been thinking about it, and I think it must be that people are really convinced that they're in the right. We feel very um, attached to our commas. (laughs) I think that it's a style issue, you know. Somebody who uses commas might have creases in his pants, you know, or have a pressed shirt on instead of one that is all rumpled. <laughs> right, so the question is not, should a comma go there, but it's almost like, what kind of a person am I? That's, that's the question you're sort of answering every time. In a way, yes, yes, it, it is. It's part of uh, your personality. It shows your character, how you use punctuation. <laughs> Before we get any further, let's take a moment to lay out exactly what an Oxford comma is. Consider the following sentence one could imagine Ron Swanson from Parks and Recreation saying, I look forward to going to hell if only to see my enemies burning for eternity, especially my two ex-wives, Karl Marx and Gwyneth Paltrow. In this case, the Oxford comma does or does not go between Karl Marx and and. There is a way of reading this sentence in which the two wives being described are Marx and Paltrow rather than Karl and Gwyneth joining two other women in the never-ending hellfires. The Oxford comma solves that by making it clear that the last item in the serial is separate from the others, rather than joined with the item right before it. But this is a rare sort of case, and usually easily rewritten to avoid whatever confusion might be possible. So what is this argument really about? If you are against the Oxford comma, it it sounds so silly, (laughs) but you truly believe that it's redundant. And the argument about the serial commas saving you from ambiguity doesn't hold up because, really, you could probably find an example of where the Oxford comma makes something more ambiguous as easily as you could find an example where the Oxford comma or the lack of the serial comma 
makes something ambiguous. So ambiguity in a series doesn't really come up that often. That's how people who are against the serial comma justify their argument. And on the other side, it's easier to use it all the time than it is to have to stop and decide whether something is ambiguous or not. It's just easier to put it in. So each side just feels really certain of their position. (laughs) How did we get here? How did we end up with this little spot in English punctuation in which two factions can claim they are right about something that doesn't actually happen that often? It only began to be called the Oxford comma um, a few years ago. I first heard it maybe maybe 10 years ago at the New Yorker. We used it. We called it the serial comma. And at some point um, under David Remnick, somebody started talking about the Oxford comma. And I wanted to say, what the hell is that? If you do a search for Oxford comma with Google's Ingram tool, which counts the number of times a word or phrase has appeared in books, you'll see that before the late 1980s, there were basically zero mentions of something called Oxford comma. In the last 20 years, though, mentions of the Oxford comma are up more than 800%. And it does lend tone to it, doesn't it, to call it the Oxford comma instead of, say, the Cornhusker comma or the Buckeye comma or any other university that has a press going, you know, the Harvard comma, the MIT comma. See there again, there's no word for the lack of a comma. And that's because before 1902, this comma that appears before the last item in a serial didn't exist, at least not in any official capacity. But in trying to develop a house style for the Oxford University Press, a man named F.H. Collins suggested placing a comma at the end of a list to avoid ambiguity and to give each item the same emphasis. His inspiration was a deployment of such a comma by the poet Herbert Spencer in listing a few colors. But it wouldn't be called an Oxford comma until the Oxford English Dictionary itself called it that at the relatively late date of 1978. And in the long arc of the comma, this was but a small change. The ones that Dickens used that were for effect went to pause, basically, and there would be a dramatic pause before the verb, after the noun, and the words themselves should hold those pauses in them, in my opinion. It's word order, not punctuation, that determines how a person reads if you read something the way the author intends. And if you go back a few more centuries, say to Greece in the 5th century BCE, you'd see just how immaterial punctuation was in early writing. Because it isn't there. None of it. Nor are there spaces between words or indented paragraphs, or even lowercase type. It's just a long string of uppercase letters that the reader has to figure out. It's the visual equivalent of hearing a totally foreign language, just this undifferentiated mass of text. A couple of centuries later, a frustrated librarian at the Library of Alexandria, named Aristophanes of Byzantium, invented punctuation as we know it. There were three dots that would appear at different heights to indicate pauses of different lengths. The subordinate dot would appear where a modern period would be and indicate a short pause. The intermediate dot would be sort of where a modern dash would be and indicate a moderate pause. And the full dot would be up in the top spot today reserved for an apostrophe. Over the next few centuries, these dots would evolve into what we know them as today. The comma, the colon, 
and the period. These new marks were meant to help you more accurately represent how a speaker sounded, really controlling how a reader read a text. Aristophanes of Byzantium had fired the first volley in a war about language that still rages. Close versus open punctuation. Well, the uh, serial comma definitely would be part of a close punctuation style. You would put that in there whether you need it or not. You would just use a serial comma as a matter of course. Closed punctuation attempts to exert as much control over the writing as possible so that the reader is as confused as little as possible. It is a natural extension of what Aristophanes was trying to do, to close the possible readings down. In general, this means using more punctuation. And the most prominent practitioner of closed punctuation is a publication Norris knows well. And then there are all of those instances that the New Yorker gets made fun of for. For instance, um... Donald Trump Jr. situation, uh, the New Yorker, for some reason, lost to history. They like a comma before junior. And if there's a comma before junior, there has to be a comma after junior. So you're kind of cordoning off what you think is an extra thing that you're adding to the sentence. So it needs a comma on either side. That's extremely close punctuation. <laughs> and the open style, I guess, is is it the opposite is the right way of thinking about it, or just a different frame of mind? You know, what it is, is the opposite. The open style of punctuation leaves it to the reader to figure it out. The closed style of punctuation wants to control how the reader reads the sentence as much as possible. The open style leaves it to the reader to figure out. So whether they know it or not, people who love or hate the Oxford comma are taking sides in a larger argument about punctuation. Proponents of it are trading cleanliness for precision, and those against it are willing to deal with some ambiguity to declutter the line. The main reason for comma is to prevent ambiguity. The reason it's there is for clarity. And yes, we have, and I think the New Yorker is partly responsible for this, we have found more reasons to use commas. I think it's gotten complicated, more complicated than it needs to be but people do need some guidelines and people need to agree on some things, even if they're agreeing to disagree about the serial comma. You'll notice I've saved this one sort of to the end, and it's a nice bridge off what you just mentioned. Where do you yourself come down on your own personal usage of the serial comma? The serial comma, I use it. It's just easier for me to use it than not to use it. And I like it. I really think it gives a little more structure to a series to have a comma after each one. And I think it's traditional, too, and I like the tradition of the serial comma. But I've come to realize that I'm a little bit of an ear girl myself. You follow certain rules, but when the rules are not helping get across what you want to do, you break them and you use your ear. And I've come to believe, in fact, that good punctuation uses a little strategy from both of those um, ways of looking at it. You follow the rules to underscore the grammar of the sentence. You break a rule in effect that the rules aren't giving you. You have to be willing to hear the answer. And if it's sometimes it's this way, sometimes it's that way, you know, that's the answer. They're, they're not hard and fast rules all the time. 
In the case of the Oxford comma, there really aren't that many times when it's an issue. There was a court case recently that hinged on the lack of an Oxford comma. Some dairy workers in Maine successfully argued that they should get overtime for certain tasks because of a lack of an Oxford comma made the list unclear. But this is a rare example and certainly doesn't explain our passion for this little bit of punctuation. I do want to say that this thing about the serial comma is what gets me, that people argue about it so passionately that it seems to them to be a moral issue. And it's, it's a matter of taste. It's not a moral issue. You're not a bad person if you don't use the serial comma. It's not something that is you judge people for, really. It tells you something about the person, but it's not a moral failing. I think I ultimately agree with Mary. Use the Oxford comma, don't use it, but go easy with it and with your judgment of those who disagree with you. But I'm not the one that needs convincing. You've seen Mary Norris and me talk about the Oxford comma, how, you know, what what we think about it, you know, what the virtues of it are, why we shouldn't care as much. Did we, did we move the needle on your opinion of the Oxford comma? I mean, Mary's just wrong. <laughs> But but is she wrong in an interesting way, like Blair? Is she wrong like Blair in an interesting way? Like if, if Mary Norris writes you back on J Date, are you are you are you interested? I'd happily have coffee with Mary to discuss the Oxford comma, but I'm a married man, Jeff. This episode was written and produced by me, Jeff O'Neill, and directed by Jeremy Desmond. Sound design and editing by Kyle O'Neill with special production assistance from Rita Mead. My thanks to Mary Norris for playing along. And if you like this episode, I highly recommend her book, Between You and Me, Confessions of a Comma Queen. And special thanks to Jeremy and Blair for letting us eavesdrop on their early courtship. I want to take a moment and thank all of you for listening and supporting this first season of Annotated. Your comments and appreciation made the work of producing these episodes a little bit lighter. I'd also like to thank Jeremy Desmond and Kyle O'Neill for listening to my early rambling about doing this show and agreeing to shape into something interesting. Thanks as well to Rebecca Shinsky for being a steadying voice and force throughout. Hachette was so brave to sponsor this season, Sound Unheard, and they've been a wonderful partner. For a little while longer, you can go enter a giveaway to win all 12 books featured this season. It's too soon yet to make any announcements about the future of Annotated, but I hope to have something soon. In the meantime, if you'd like to hear more episodes in the future, the best and simplest thing to do would be to recommend it to a friend, or lots of friends. And if you want to do something beyond that, go rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. Until next time, cheers and thank you.